G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. You know, I've spent my life as a pastor wondering why it's difficult to get people to enter into regular, sustained prayer. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff shares with us about the importance of talking with God, the power of prayer, and why it's so difficult for us to regularly commit to praying. His message is prayer resolutions. The testimonies of prayer and the power of prayer over individual lives are so well documented, and yet it's still one of the most difficult things for us to do regularly. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, and just hold that. 1988, cardiologist Randolph Bird of the San Francisco Memorial Hospital did a landmark study on intercessory prayer. It was a respected study because it met all the criteria. And here's what he did. He took 393 patients out of the coronary care unit of the hospital, divided them into two groups. First group that consisted of 192 patients He assigned people to pray for them all over the U.S. Now, they didn't know they were being prayed for. So they were involved in intercessory prayer, and they didn't even know it. Somebody somewhere in the U.S. was praying for them while they were in the coronary care unit. The other group, uh, 201 patients, did not receive prayer from anybody in the organization. They, I mean, obviously, they didn't walk up and say, hey, we just want you to know that you are not being prayed for. It didn't work like that. (laughs) They simply said, 192 patients... Assigned intercessory people who would pray, 201 did not pray. Again, this was well-respected, well-documented, went out all over national news. The statistical variance was significant, if not miraculous. Here's what they discovered, that patients who were not prayed for were twice as likely, over 50%, more likely to suffer complications, twice as likely to suffer heart failure, three times more likely to require diuretics or suffer pneumonia, and five times more likely to need antibiotics. It's amazing. I read that, and you know, I've spent my life as a pastor wondering why it's difficult to get people to enter into regular, sustained prayer. And uh, if you think of it, I mean, it's like if someone were to tell you, hey, you've got an audience with God for 15 minutes, and you say, no, you know what, I'm kind of busy next Tuesday. I don't think I can do that. Or somebody tell you, you get, you're invited to the Oval Office to meet the president. You got a half hour with the president. You say, sorry, man, I think I'm mini golfing that day. I don't think I can make it. Even if you don't like the president, you get 30 minutes to talk to the president about what you don't like. If you love him, you get 30 minutes to talk about what you do like. It's like me as a golfer having an hour with Tiger Woods and turning it down to talk about the golf swing. The testimonies of prayer and the power of prayer over individual lives are so well documented. It goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And yet, it's still one of the most difficult things for us to do regularly with any kind of discipline whatsoever. There are stories and stories about how prayer has been able to sustain people in the midst of horrific atrocities. You think of Corey Ten Boom again, her great book, The Hiding Place. Most of us are familiar with the statement she made that no 
pit of despair is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. But we forget what she wrote a few lines above that when she said, prayer brings God near during the most difficult of circumstances. There have been people in concentration camps during the Holocaust, atrocious situations that have not only been able to survive these and live to tell about it, but to actually thrive in the midst of them because of prayer. We read those stories, we hear them. I remember reading about uh, Norman uh, Schwarzkopf, General Norman Schwarzkopf, during the Persian Gulf War. Uh, He went on record to say, and remember, here's a general that had access to the greatest firepower known to man up till that time. And even as the missiles were going out to hone in on their targets, he went on record to say that he was on his knees in prayer. Prayer's been known to change the course of history, transform the lives of individuals, save entire nations as it did under Joseph, and call people out of the mundane existence into extraordinary living. As a matter of fact, prayer's even been known to change the weather. Something that people in the Midwest take for granted, I think. James chapter 5 Elijah was a man like us. In other words, there was nothing special about him. He was just like you and me. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the Bible says the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Now, folks, that is done in two minutes. I could stand here for hours and tell you about the stories, how the reformation occurred in prayer. Revivals of the past have occurred, not at great preaching, but at great prayer. God has moved in the world because his people came and they began to pray and he heard and he released his divine energy into individuals, into entire governments, into entire countries and in our world. So why don't we pray? Why, don't, why aren't we like the apostle Paul when he said, pray without ceasing? Your, your whole life is a life of walking, talking with God. Why don't we go to God's throne with great boldness and courage, believing that God will hear us and will act? Why don't we go with passionate prayers to God, motivated by a burden of the heart, thinking that God will actually do something? Now, if you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have probably said something like this. Well, we're busy. We live in the Western world. Who has 15 minutes to do anything, really? Especially sit and ponder in quietness. For a lot of us, I think we do want to pray. And I think we hear sermons on prayer, and we get motivated for a while. And then we get lost in the silence. What am I supposed to be doing? Is anybody really hearing me? What's going on here? I mean, is there really, I know there's God, but does he really care? 10 years ago, I would have mentioned those things. Today, I go back to James 1 when James says, when you pray or when you ask God anything, you got to believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, is James saying, if you ask God for anything and you believe you'll get it? No, this is not a name it and claim it passage. It's not saying, if you ask God for a new Mercedes, it will be yours. If you don't doubt, you're going to get it. That's not what he's saying. James is saying, there are some uncertain, listen, there are some uncertainties in your mind that you don't mouth, you don't verbalize, but they're there. And until you learn to deal with them, you will never experience prayer the way you want to experience and the way God wants you to experience. There are uncertainties we never talk about. For instance, we're uncertain about to whom we're really praying. You say, oh, no, I'm not praying to God. Yeah, but what is God really like? Well, I mean, what does he care about? What are his hobbies? Who is this guy? You got to resolve that in your mind before you ever start to pray. We're uncertain about whether or not our little lives really matter in the bigger scheme of things. I mean, after all, there's world hunger, there's poverty, there's war and death. I don't think it really matters much to God that I can't make my car payment at the end of the month. Those are uncertainties you've got to deal with. We're not sure we deserve to be heard. After all, what about that sin I committed yesterday? 
or just five minutes ago. We're all sinners in the room, right? Everybody, the people on the stage, the people out there. So there's a part of us that says, you know, I, I just thought I'm not worthy to go into the presence of God because I sinned last week or yesterday or a few minutes ago or some of the words you had with your wife on the way to church this morning. Just those words. And so we think, why well, pray? I'm struggling with this addiction. So I'll clean myself up, then I'll pray. Yeah, good luck. But then there's a big one. Isn't the future fixed anyway? Doesn't God know everything's going to happen and it's already fixed? So what good is my prayer? I mean, does it really do anything? Really? Until you resolve those questions in your mind, you will never pray the way God intended and the way you want to. You have got to make some resolutions. The double-mindedness has to go. You don't have to have perfect faith, but there are some things you must resolve. And James says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. His message is about making prayer resolutions and the power of prayer. Let's continue. A few years ago, I read a book called Man in the Mirror. I think Pat Morley wrote the book. And it has a story in it that I've used many times. And every time I think about prayer, I think about this story. It's the four fishermen who went up to an Alaskan bay fishing for salmon in the icy cold waters there. And they caught the mother load. There were four of them, one of whom was Dr. Littleford. And he had a son named Mark who was 12 years old. He had to accompany them on the trip. So they got all these salmon that they had caught. And they loaded them up on the boat, then loaded them on the plane. They were so happy about what had happened. They took off and they did not recognize that the pontoon on the left side of the plane had filled with water. And so they no sooner took off as they nosedived back into the icy waters of the Alaskan Bay. They were too far from shore uh, to really do anything other than swim for their lives. And they began to swim in those icy cold waters. True story. But they were swimming against the current and it was fierce. Three of the men made it to shore after swimming with all they had. They looked back and they saw something that would mark them for the rest of their lives. They saw Dr. Littleford, who could have made it to shore and saved his own life, but his son Mark was too weak to make it and he couldn't carry him. So Dr. Littleford just grabbed his son Mark, held him in his arms. They both drifted out to the icy waters and they died together so his son would not have to die alone. Please listen to me. The God you worship is not the God of Eastern mysticism. There's no God inside you. There's no God down deep inside you and you know it. The God you serve is not the God of Buddhism, a God that tries to seduce you into believing that your emotions are not real, that reality is not real. And if you just deny yourself everything, you may find peace in this life. God is not the God of Hinduism and 330 million different gods. God is not the God of Islam. Allah is not personal and he is unattached and he is unrelatable. Ask any Muslim, he will tell you it is the will of Allah. Your prayers don't really matter. You may feel holy. It may give you a sense of somewhat peace. But in the reality, the God Allah is unrelatable. He is impersonal. This is not the God of the Bible. It is not the picture of God that the Bible paints. Yes, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is self-existing. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself for his own existence. Therefore, nothing he has created has power over him. Yes, the Bible says he's omnipresent. David says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go east, you're there. If I go west, you're there. If I go north and south, you are always there. And David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to imagine. Yes, God is omnipresent. Yes, God is omnipotent. Yes, God is omniscient. 
Hebrews chapter 4 says, nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But tell me something. God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. God is omniscient. He's all knowing. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Does that comfort you and encourage you to pray? Think about it for a second. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows every thought you've ever had. And he knows every place you've ever been. Because whether you realize it or not, he's right there with you. But thank God. God is unique in one area. No other God claims this or even understands it. God is also love. There are four Greek words in the Bible describing love. There's agape, unconditional love. There's phileo, friendship love. There's eros, which is an erotic type of love, romantic love. And then there's storge, a paternal or maternal type of love. The two words the Bible uses to describe the love of God for you, stay with me, you have got to resolve this if you ever hope to pray, are the two words storge and agape, that God is your father who loves you and will never stop loving you. Now go to Romans. He says it like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Do you see Paul's point? He's saying that God doesn't just love you now. He always will love you. There's nothing happening outside you. They can separate you from the love of God. He is your father. Chaos. Tsunamis. Earthquakes. That we can grapple with. But Paul is saying there's nothing happening inside you that can ever change the fact and reality that God loves you. Nothing happening outside. Nothing. The Lord of the universe loves you now and will love you in the future. You say, how can he do that? He doesn't know what I'm going to do in the future because his love is not based on what you do. Now, look, stay with me. My son Delaney went through a stage when we lived in New Zealand where he did the exact opposite of what his father told him to do. I know none of your children do that, but mine did that. I told him not to play with the little boy toys in Sunday school. We were a small church. He had a friend at that point in Delaney's life. He was more of a follower than a leader. And I said, man, don't... Don't follow, lead. And so when little Jason tells you to do things your dad's told you not to, trust me on this. Of course, he didn't. And so they call me after church, after I delivered my message one weekend. They said, Pastor Jeff, you better come downstairs. Your son has broken his arm. And sure enough, he was a big boy, but he rode in the little boy's little car. And he had his friend pushing him down the concrete and the car just broke because Delaney was too heavy for it. And he fell out and he broke his arm. Now think about what kind of father would I be if I went to Delaney and did this? You directly disobeyed me. I never want to talk to you again. What does dad do? A dad who loves. What does dad do? Son, let us reason together. (laughs) I told you that I gave these principles to you because I love you and I'm trying to protect you. You need to have faith in my faithfulness to you. If I cut off communication, I cut off life, love, and relationship, which is what I want most with my son, which is what God wants most with you. When you fail, you run to God, not away from him. There are things inside every one of you that you just hope and pray never get out. Come on. True. You're capable of doing things. That's why it's very, you got to be very careful of judging other people. You have no idea what you would do in their shoes and in that circumstance. And the reality is 
That so many of us have something down deep inside that is so bad, if it ever gets out, you're going to stand back and say, wow, I cannot believe I was capable of doing that. I cannot believe I was capable of saying that. Listen again to the apostle Paul's words. He says, but who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Who condemn you? Nobody. Why? Because Christ Jesus died. And more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God also interceding for you. Do you hear what he's saying? You're right with God and there's nothing happening inside you that can ever change that love God has for you because you're not justified before God by being good. Christ died for you and more than that, he's up at the right hand of the Father and every time you mess up, God looks down and says, "Uh uh-oh, but Jesus says, don't worry, he's with me. His sins have been forgiven. There is nothing. I want you to, I want to make sure you get this because until you get this, you're never going to pray and you're never going to get intense in your prayers. So I want to make sure you get it. I want you to repeat it after me. God loves me no matter what bad stuff is happening inside me. I want to count of three. One, two, three. God loves me no matter what bad stuff is happening inside me. You are praying to a God whose love for you is unbreakable. Do you know why you have a hard time accepting that? Because it's not the way you love. You're not God. Remember what I said? The biggest difference between you and God is he doesn't think he's you. (laughs) There's a beautiful passage in Deuteronomy 7 that has sustained me for so much of my life. And man, this is something it took a long time for me to learn because I grew up in a very rigorous, ritualistic, legalistic church. And that can suck the life right out of you. And it can give you a sense of arrogance that you're better than everybody. And hopefully one day God will wake you up. And in Deuteronomy 7, there's this kind of question that comes to God. Why do you love us? And God's response is classic. He says, and you can read it later. Just write this passage down. I want you to stay in Romans. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than all other peoples. In other words, not because you were grand. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. And I'm going to stop right there. God uses circular reasoning almost in answering the question. He says, let me tell you why I love you. I love you because I love you. You think about that. You think about that. I say to my wife, Robin, Robin, I love you. Why do you love me? Because I love you. (laughs) Right? But in reality, isn't that the only way to love? Because anything you fill in the blank with, that means that person who is the object of your love, their significance and security is going to be tied to whatever you filled in the blank with. Rob and I love you because you don't need Nutrisystem. <laughs> I'm still paying for that, just so you know. Just so you know. Just so you know. Okay, Rob and I love you because your eyes are blue. I love you because your hair is short. I love you because whatever I say, when those things are gone then she's going to wonder if I still love her. The only appropriate response is, I love you because I love you. That's what God says. The other reason is because you and I in our culture do not believe that discipline and love can go together. And that's why many of your children are turning out the way they are. Okay, now I know it. Please, no emails. I know a lot of, look, it doesn't matter who you are. At the end of the day, You only do the best you can as a parent and trust God for grace and mercy. I get that. 
But in God's mind, discipline and love go together. They're not inseparable. Hebrews chapter 12 says, because the Lord disciplines those from the one he loves and he chastises or chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Now, let me show you how this works. I'm going to show you a map. I want you to look at the map and it's going to stay on the screen until I lower my hand. This is a map. If you were going to go from Christ Church of the Valley in San Dimas down to Union Station, I want you to notice how many different roads you can take. There's so many different ways you can go, isn't there? Now, the Bible says that God, as a child of God, if you're a child of God, God is going to get you to Union Station or his end goal. Okay? The road you take is going to be entirely, or not entirely, but dramatically up to you. God is going to get you there. That's his end. But the more you disobey, you're going to be taking some side roads. And some of them are going to go by the cliffs. And some of you are going to get to Union Station from San Dimas by way of Newport Beach. God will get you there. But every time you go down a road, he puts up a roadblock, tries to take you on another road. You go down that road and you go down the wrong way. He's going to put you on it. It's God's work in your life to get you down the road and ultimately to the destination because he loves you and he's never going to forsake you. And there's nothing happening inside you that he will not continue to redirect till he gets you to your final destination. Do you understand that? God loves you and nothing separates Nothing happening inside you, nothing happening outside you, and this God cares about every moment of your life. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I don't know why there are some bad things that happen in your life. Sometimes they're roadblocks. Sometimes it's the discipline of God. Sometimes it's a sinful world. Even though I can't explain to you why these things sometimes happen, I know the reason it can't be. It can't be because God doesn't love you because he gave what was most precious to him, his only son. So therefore, will he not give you all good things? This is Today with Jeff Bynes, and we're halfway through his message on prayer resolutions. Please join us next time to hear the rest from Pastor Jeff. To whom you pray is important. You're praying to the God, the creator and sustainer of all that is. The God of the Bible is not like any other God. To hear more right now, you can head to the Vision Christian Store. That's visionstore.org.au and click on Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.